Thank you all for joining me today in another episode of History's Great Mysteries, a show where hopefully I can blow your mind every week with puzzling topics from our past. This week is no exception in that regard, but it will be slightly different than some of the other episodes I've done. Instead of picking one singular mysterious event to devote an entire episode to, today I'm bringing you several different events on the same topic, each as crazy as the next. Throughout human history, we've had brilliant minds come to the forefront of scientific research with certain inventions that irreversibly changed the world, oftentimes in very positive ways. Think of Alexander Graham Bell with the telephone, or Thomas Edison with the first practical light bulb. But what if I told you that there are countless inventions from the past that, for one reason or another, became hopelessly lost through the ages? Inventions that could have absolutely altered the path of mankind. Many times, these truly ingenious scientific breakthroughs are so ahead of their time that they wouldn't be seen again for thousands of years, and in other cases, they really are never seen again. If we could only somehow recover this extinct technology, it could change everything, not to mention change how we view the past. Today, I bring you a list of some of the most famous and mysterious lost inventions of history. <laughs> The first lost invention I will talk about is that of Greek fire. Now, we all know what a flamethrower is and about its effectiveness in wartime activities. The idea of a flamethrower that you and I picture in our heads was first widely used in the trenches of World War I and then used even more heavily in World War II. From there, it maintained usage throughout the world until about the end of the Cold War. In modern times, the idea of weaponizing fire has evolved into other more sophisticated forms such as the thermobaric bomb. However, it is well known that the Byzantine Empire actually developed and used flamethrower weaponry all the way back in the year 678, a weapon that is most commonly just referred to as Greek fire. This invention is credited to a Greek man by the name of Callinicus, who in 668 escaped to Constantinople from Syria with a secret formula in mind to create a sort of flammable liquid. So this means that Callinicus invented a type of flamethrower roughly 1,230 years before the technology could ever really be created again. What's more, his flamethrower was probably even better than that of what we know today, and it's all thanks to this unique concoction that he assembled. See, the thing is that I would absolutely love to tell you what exactly it is that he created, like what's exactly in it, but I can't. And that's why we call this a famous lost invention. No one, and I mean no one, knows the ingredients that he used or the technique that he used to create his flammable liquid. And furthermore, no one knows how he created the firing device that he, that he instilled and that would propel the fire so far. See, what would happen is that Byzantine ships and defensive encampments would set up these large bronze tubes, which in one way or another could shoot this extremely volatile liquid at long distances for devastating results upon their enemies. Upon contact with almost any substance or any, any, any surface, wood, cloth, uh, flesh, and even water itself, the concoction would catch fire and then set everything else around it ablaze. Of course, Greek fire instantly became the favorite weapon of the Byzantine Empire as they used it in sea warfare and to defend their homeland. 
we could only imagine the vast amount of damage and havoc that this could cause upon the otherwise unsuspecting enemy ships and warriors who had really nothing to defend against it. Understandably, Greek fire became the stuff of nightmares for enemy nations, and it's one of the main reasons that the capital city of Constantinople stood strong and untouched for hundreds of years and well into the 15th century. It's also the reason that the secret formula for Greek fire was staunchly guarded throughout the empire's history. As its lineage of emperors would pass from one to the next, they would pass the secret formula down to the next in line and certainly never allow it to fall into enemy hands. In fact, Emperor Romanos II, who ruled from 959 to 963, declared a list of exactly three things that shall never reach foreign hands. The imperial regalia, any royal princess, and Greek fire. And thus, Greek fire was exclusively used by the Byzantine Empire for centuries as the most feared and effective weapon of war in the world. They also eventually found new applications for it, eventually filling like clay grenades for use in land battles and to continue their further dominance in war. However, when the Byzantine Empire fell in 1453 for reasons other than war, uh, the last remaining soul with knowledge of the ingredients used died, and Greek fire was never really seen again in the world. Since then, many have tried to recreate it, but to varying amounts of success, with no one really ever achieving the characteristics described in its time of use. See, Greek fire was unique in that it could not only maintain its heavy liquid state for propelling across distances, but it also had an unmatched ability to light seemingly anything ablaze. As I said before, even when it hit open water, it would remain lit. This made it so that if Greek fire was used against an enemy ship, you know, they might try to douse the fire with water, but in fact they would actually only be adding another substance to become part of the inferno. This made it so that attempts at maybe covering ships in wet cloth or attacking during a rainstorm all just proved to be fruitless efforts as Greek fire could not be stopped. What's more is that the usage of Greek fire, the, the weapon system of it, was actually so complicated in use that a Byzantine ship was actually captured by Bulgarian forces at one point, and they absolutely had no luck in one, reverse engineering the ingredients of the liquid, and then two, even succeeding in figuring out how to use the weapon system. So some are convinced of a few things, like that the liquid contains some sort of light petroleum that's unique to the region, and that the petroleum element of the mixture went through a complex distilling process, but again, no one is sure what exactly is in it and how exactly it was made. If the world had access to such technology, the subsequent wars such as the 80s-year war, the 30s-year war, uh, the American and French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars all could have looked and turned out significantly different, that is, if Greek fire was used. But it seems that we'll never know the alternate history here, and going further, we may never know the precise components of Greek fire, which is what makes it a true and scary lost invention of history. Sticking with ancient Greece, but going even further back this time, the second lost invention I will cover is the famous Antikythera Mechanism. Some of you may have heard of this artifact, it's a truly groundbreaking discovery when it was lifted off of the ocean floor in 1901. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with this mechanism, you also surely understand how absolutely baffling it is for historians, and how desperately it needs an explanation. See, sometimes between, uh, sometime between the 3rd and 1st century BC, this circular bronze device was created in somewhere in southern Europe, and it's anyone's guess as to who actually made it, but the reason why it was made is what makes this piece so intriguing. 
on the outside, it appears to look like just a rusted and decayed bronze gear of some sort. Uh, it's round, and it's about the size of like a large dinner plate. And on the outer ring of the objects, it's various inscriptions that are m- at like measured distances apart. So think about like a protractor that you might have used in school. And then also similarly to a protractor, it had internal arms that could rotate around the outer ring. The object got its name when it was discovered in an ancient shipwreck off the coast of the Greek island Antikythera. When the main portion of the object was lifted up, no one quite understood the significance. Over the next several years, more and more pieces made their way to the surface. Some French scientists and researchers were vaguely interested in the piece, but its true significance and unexplainable nature wasn't fully appreciated until a team at Cardiff University in Wales released CT scans of its complex inner workings and mechanisms that a true burst in scholarly attention was then given. As a side note, these scans are truly incredible. I would highly recommend you check them out. They're really, really cool. Um, if you have a chance, uh, it's a it's like a great website with all these CT scans on them, and you can find a link to that on my Facebook page if you have the time. But anyways, uh, what had been discovered with this research is that this device was used to map and track and then predict astrological movements. Apparently, it has the ability to track the sun, the moon, uh, nearby planets, and also it's actually able to accurately predict eclipses. Now, of course, the ancient Greeks, along with you know practically every other ancient civilization, were very intrigued by the stars and space. So it's not surprising to hear that they took an interest in tracking these movements, but what's incredible is the nature of the mechanism. One investigator even claimed it as a sort of ancient Greek computer. The utilization of machinery to answer questions and to get work done is something that we as humans are very familiar with. We do it every day. But for the most part, it's a very modern idea. Civilizations of the past were way more focused on the natural world, you know? And a mechanism such as this, at this type of complexity, uh, is truly never seen again in the world for thousands of years. And essentially what could happen if you were to hold this mechanism in your hands is that you could crank a knob on the side of it to the right or left, and you could then go forwards or backwards in time. And then uh, seven separate arms that are in the middle of this dial would then rotate at different speeds around, and, and they would point at different places on that outer ring. And where these things would land would indicate where constellations would be on a certain day or where Mars would be or Venus or when the next eclipse might be. And this is actually going to be probably the nerdiest thing that I ever say in this entire podcast, but I have to. For those of you who are familiar with the the TV show Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, think about the big machine that Sokka used in, in the second season to determine when the next solar eclipse would be. He kind of just like shifted through the gears until he got to the right day. That's exactly what the Antikythera mechanism did, just on a smaller form factor. So there are many theories about uh, possible inventors, as there are some known ancient Greek astronomers like Hipparchus, who may have had a hand in this, or it might have been a team of his, or maybe it was even the great mathematician Archimedes. But what mystifies those who research it is that the device was never mentioned in any kind of ancient work, you know, written down anywhere, and, and then even more mystifying is why the technology went nowhere from there. I mean, this is the only example of we ha- that we have of this type of technology at this time in the world. And it is possible that there are more objects like it that are, you know, just lost in the depths of the seas, but this is the only one that we know of. 
And just think about how different and how advanced we might be as a species right now if ancient computers and machinery like this came to the forefront of science. And, you know, just imagining the possibilities for me makes my mind spin. And the Antikythera mechanism is proof that, you know, ancient humans may have accomplished far more than we give them credit for. The pure unbelievable nature of this technology leads some to even go as far as saying that this mechanism belonged to some long-lost ancient civilization like Atlantis. Or maybe it was a mechanism that, like, fell from a flying saucer. But whatever your inclination, we really need an explanation as how it came to be. For our next lost technology, I will talk about flexible glass. That's right, you heard right, flexible glass. It sounds impossible and contradictory, but according to primary sources from the early days of the Roman Empire, it was not only possible, but it was also achieved. Unfortunately, the details behind this invention are a bit cloudy, as we do not have any kind of remaining piece or, or cup or physical evidence of this glass anywhere, so instead we rely on descriptions of the material all the way back during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. The main sources are an encyclopedia titled Naturalis Historia, written by a renowned natural philosopher in Emperor Caesar's court, and then a more dramatized account of what happened uh, is written in a novel by Gaius Petronius. Now, neither source identifies the inventor by name, but they seem to indicate that the first instance of flexible glass was created by a brilliant Roman glassmaker of the time. During the Roman Empire, it was not uncommon for the nobility to rely upon a highly skilled glassmaker to supply them with you know, beautiful pieces of craftsmanship for, for their uses. However, the accounts of this flexible glass blow everything else at that time out of the water. Apparently, this glass could be crafted into any shape, be it a cup, a dish, anything. And it was transparent and heavy to the touch, just like normal glass, but it would not shatter upon being dropped or anything like that. This type of material does not you know, really exist in modern times. The closest thing we have to it is those new ultra-thin, you know, that ultra-thin glass material that's being used on curved screens in some of the newer, like, cell phones and monitors, but... To create thick glass that, that can be molded into any shape and maintain all the characteristics of normal glass minus the shattering part is something that we still cannot do. Theories run abound as historians clamor to try and identify what possibly could have been in this formula to give it its flexible and resistant nature. Some theorize that it's possible the Roman glassmaker found an amount of boric oxide and discovered that he could make this new kind of glass by adding a small and precise amount to his normal mixture, but even then, modern attempts at this technique do not yield what exactly was described back then. So of course, now you're asking, okay, well, why don't we have it? If it's so cool and useful, like I'm claiming it to be, then why did it not take hold? What happened to it? Well, it turns out that the amazing nature of this glass may be the exact reason that it never took hold. In the Encyclopedia Naturalis Historia, it is said that when the craftsman responsible for creating it presented it to the emperor, instead of it being embraced, you know, and being accepted and being used, it was then decided that that, that craftsman's whole workshop would be shut down. And from that day on, flexible glass was never made again in the Roman Empire. And it's said that this was done because Emperor Caesar was afraid that this new and amazing flexible glass commodity would depreciate the value of his other resources like salt and gold. So when that glassmaker died years later, he left this world with 
you know, never telling his knowledge of the formula or the technique used to make this flexible glass to anybody else. And as we know, no written account of the ingredients have ever been found. So that was the history according to that encyclopedia, Naturalis Historia. But again, there's that other, um, that other source that's, that has a slight variation on the events, uh, uh, that novel that was written by Gaius Petronius. Now, in his words, what actually happened was that this glassmaker was brought to the emperor's court, and he had nothing but confidence that his new invention would be accepted, bought, and then he would be made rich by the commission that he achieved. So when he stood in front of Tiberius Caesar and he demonstrated the amazing qualities of his glass, he actually just threw the, a glass cup down on the ground and stunned everyone around when he picked it up and then showed that it only had a small dent in its side, a dent which he actually was able to reshape and made the cup back into its original shape. But instead of being met with acceptance, this glassmaker was met with distrust. It is written that Caesar actually asked him if anyone else knew of the technique to make this glass, and when the craftsman said no, he was killed right there on the spot, most likely in an effort again to keep the emperor's other commodities like salt, gold, silver from depreciating uh, with you know this new competition that this flexible glass would bring in. So believe as you wish in this instant, but one way or another, that inventor died without ever passing along his knowledge to the outside world. And thus, it's time to put on your conspiracy caps, because now I will jump into a few other lost inventions that may actually be better described as suppressed inventions. Now you, me, your grandmother, everyone has heard about the new wave of automobiles sweeping the nation. Electric cars. The shiniest and most innovative type of automobile out there, right? But what if I told you that the first practical electric car was made and sold all the way back in 1884 by a man named Thomas Parker. By the turn of the century in 1900, electric cars actually outnumbered the amount of gas-powered cars on the road in the United States. Not only that, taxi cabs and tram systems were also electric, meaning both private and public transport in the United States was more electric than gas at one point in our history. And oh wow, if we could only get back to that. So you must be asking, you know, if this is true, well then what happened? And this is kind of why I asked you to put on your conspiracy caps, because would it be all that shocking if I told you that wealthy oil companies had a hand to play in the downfall of the electric car? In 1907, the first New York taxicab company, aptly named Electric Carriage and Wagon Company, was actually destroyed in a mysterious fire that burned every single taxi in their warehouse. One year later, in 1908, the first ever practical and widely affordable gas-powered car, the Ford Model T, was released to the public. Over the next few years, there was widespread conflict between electric and combustion engines, both vying to become the more common form of transport. And there are two sides to the coin here about you know why we didn't run with electric technology. And remember, Back then, climate change was not a publicly known issue, and therefore it did not factor into any of the decision-making, really. Um, so some like to argue that it was the electric car manufacturer's fault that the technology died, as they were unable to adapt. It is true that combustion engines offered cheaper options to consumers and also offered a wider range for travel, as the United States was continually lengthening and improving their road system. Okay, but what about the public uh, electric trams, and what about those other electric cab companies? Well, funny enough, many of these companies were bought out in a sweeping acquisition across 16 states by a large company called National City Lines. But what they don't tell you 
is that National City Lines was owned and operated by smaller subsidiary companies, namely General Motors, Firestone Tire, Phillips Petroleum, and Chevron. The U.S. government actually convicted this large company of attempting to monopolize the public transit industry. In 1990, electric car technology actually tried to make a resurgence when California passed the Zero Emissions Vehicle Mandate that officially made it so that car companies had to offer zero emission electric cars. Uh, I didn't know this. This was just back in 1990, and apparently electric cars were really had to be a thing, especially in California. It was stipulated that at least 10% of every company's sales had to be of these electric cars. Other states also thought about joining in on this piece of legislation, and soon enough, giant car companies like Toyota, Nissan, Chrysler were all manufacturing thousands of electric cars. But as we are all aware, this fizzled out shortly thereafter, and the mandate was repealed. Why? Well, investigations into various car companies involved cited a lack of public demand as the reason. However, Public ratings on the cars for, for those who actually got their hands on these electric alternatives were very high, and it could be more accurately described that a lack of public knowledge and advertising is the reason that these didn't catch on. Uh, but why would these large international car companies spend millions of dollars to design and manufacture these new kinds of automobiles only to never advertise? I mean, it doesn't seem like them, right? Maybe there was some third player in this scenario that may have had an influence. It is only very recently with uh, you know, public awareness about global warming at an all-time high that electric cars have started to make a comeback. But again, I feel like I keep coming back to this. Imagine the world that we could live in right now if the technology behind electric cars could have grown and evolved from when it was first introduced in the early 1900s rather than that of the technology of gas engines. I mean, surely we didn't know about the consequences of emissions way back in the early 1900s, but it really seems like we are stuck in our ways. As much as I hate to admit it, Western civilizations are reliant on gas automobiles and transport, a fact that will take a lot of time and effort to change. But that hasn't stopped some brilliant and entrepreneurial minds from trying to make a difference. I'm now going to introduce you to a truly incredible man who is responsible for our next lost invention. His name is Stanley Meyer, and you've never heard of him, huh? Well, he's going to show us that brilliance to change the world can come from anywhere, even in your spare time in your garage. Stanley Meyer was a truly gifted man when it came to creativity and science. His occupation could said to, it was kind of like he was an entrepreneurial inventor who worked in the field of technology and energy sources, having over 40 patents to his name. In 1975, there was a spike in oil prices that prompted Stanley to investigate alternative ways of fueling his car. He fiddled around in, in this realm of research for years before eventually unveiling his water fuel cell. He claimed that this component could take liquid water, H2O, and convert it into its base molecules, hydrogen and oxygen, and then they could be cleanly burned to generate usable energy, which then he would use to run the engine of a car. Uh, the process of deconstructing water in this way is not new. It's actually commonly practiced in laboratories in a method called electrolysis. However, Stanley reportedly created a quicker and simpler method of electrolysis that allowed for its usage in a smaller form factor, and then he put it under the hood of a car. Now, there is some skepticism from scientists that such a method is near impossible and highly unlikely to have been achieved by Mr. Meyer, but 
there are amounts of proof that he actually did invent what he claims. Uh, firstly, there are pictures of Stanley Meyer driving around his water-powered car. Um, he was actually once quoted saying that he could easily drive across the entire country on one fill-up of water from his garden hose. What's more is Stanley actually took his invention to a patent review board, and that means that you know he was actually he he took his patent, and then under Section 101 of the Subject Matter Eligibility Index, they approved his patent, which meant essentially that it was investigated, operated, and then deemed reliable by a professional team of reviewers. So while his patent was pending, he you know sought out investors in his technology from whom. Many big businesses were interested. However, he also undoubtedly caught the eye of other big businesses, uh, big businesses that rhyme with boil companies, and these eyes did not like the look of things. An alternative fuel source that was, in every sense of the word, superior to oil. So we now get to the unfortunate events that led to this becoming a lost invention of history. On March 21st, 1998, Stanley Meyer and his brother were out having lunch at Cracker Barrel uh, with two potential wealthy investors. So the four clanked their glasses and cheers, and Stanley then took a sip of his cranberry juice. Moments later, he then clutched his throat and ran outside the restaurant. His brother quickly got up and followed him out, and he saw Stanley rolling around on the pavement outside. His brother then kneeled over him, and that's when Stanley turned to him and muttered his final words. They poisoned me, and then died. Yeah, I, I know. And, and that's a true story. There was an extensive and full-fledged police investigation afterwards, given the shady nature of this death. And at the end of it all, the coroner reported that Stanley died of a cerebral aneurysm. And my curiosity was piqued at this, so I did some research on what actually happens to someone when they have a cerebral aneurysm. And as it turns out... <laughs> Clutching at the throat and gasping for air is not a common symptom of an aneurysm. The closest symptom would be that of vomiting, but this was never described at the scene of the death. And get this, when his brother called the two other men that were there that day at the lunch and informed them of Stanley's passing, uh, they did not offer any kind of condolence or asked a single question. It's strange, to say the least. And I'm not sure on the legality issues here, but... Apparently, after Stanley's death, because he was the only person listed on his patent, no one could ever really continue the work of this water fuel cell. And also, apparently, Stanley had not yet fully released, I guess, his like blueprint of the, his invention. So when he died, he truly took the invention to the grave with him. And yet again, it's a true shame because the world really could do with some time away from fossil fuels. And just think of the difference that his water fuel cell really could have made in our lives. But instead, we still rely on oil, and we will most likely continue to rely on it until we have drained every last drop from our planet. And in the meantime, it seems oil companies are determined to keep their power over us. So, from the words of my favorite author, Kurt Vonnegut, We are all addicts of fossil fuel in a state of denial, and like so many addicts about to face cold turkey, our leaders are now co committing violent crimes to get what little is left of what we're hooked on. Now, moving right along here, let me give you guys a little anecdote. 
In college, I took a lot of classes in health and science, and through these classes, one thing I definitely had hammered into my brain is this. Cigarettes are bad for you. Unhealthy. Terrible consequences. The day that I compared healthy lung tissue to lung tissue of a smoker under a microscope is one that I'll never forget. In the world today, there are big pushes to create healthier alternatives to smoking, such as e-cigarettes and nicotine patches, just to name a couple. But a lot of damage that cigarette companies did occurred in the time before we realized the dangers. By the time we finally did, many individuals had already begun to suffer the consequences, but even worse yet, the idea of cigarettes and tobacco had worked their way into the very seams of society. That's why the next lost invention I will touch on is the Palladium Cigarette, a cigarette alternative that showed extreme promise until its ultimate demise. This research is sometimes referred to as Project XA, the safer cigarette never sold, in 1968, a cigarette company by the name of Leggett was understandably afraid of the new research that was coming out around that time that their product was actually harmful to those who smoked and could ultimately cause cancer later in life. So in response, Leggett launched a multi-million dollar research project that was officially titled Project XA that aimed to create a cigarette product that was safer but also had the same characteristics people expected from cigarettes. Eleven years later, in 1979, the company declared success, as they had apparently succeeded in adding a small amount of palladium metal and magnesium nitrate to tobacco to act as a catalyst um, during the burning process, which would result in a cleaner and more complete burn, which would then lead to less carcinogens being inhaled into the body. Furthermore, they found that the unwanted tar residue was all but neutralized, and lastly, they also eventually perfected the other aspects of the product to the point where they were believed to be commercial of commercial quality and they were ready for consumers. This all sounds great and dandy, right? But for a couple of dark reasons, these safer cigarettes never actually hit the shelves. Leggett ended up in court with other large tobacco companies where Big names came to the stand and literally threatened the existence of Leggett if they were to go forward with marketing this new cigarette. See, while digging even further into this case, I found that apparently there's this large umbrella group of lobbyists that's called the Tobacco Institute that operates with governments across the world to lobby the interest of these big, back, big tobacco companies. And... Like, just as an aside, I mean, holy hell, when I read this, my first thought was like, wow, that, that really sounds like a job that you can, you know, rest easy at night knowing that you're making a positive impact in this world. But anyways, Leggett was threatened with exclusion from this institute if they went forward with marketing. So apparently the other companies felt justified in making these threats because they felt that, and I quote, conventional cigarettes are not unsafe. And they felt that if one company was marketing cigarettes as being safer than others, then they're then indicting all other cigarette brands as unsafe, which would have a negative impact on their precious businesses. And so because of this extreme outside pressure, Leggett never sold their safer alternative, and the research was scrapped, never to be continued. And, I mean, this one is insane to me. There really is no gray area here. Like, oh, maybe it was a conspiracy, maybe it wasn't. Like, no, <laughs> this was straight up a conspiracy against the public to continue the use of harmful cigarettes. Like, these quotes were made in court, 
and they're officially recorded. There is no way around it. So, geez, if you take anything away from this podcast, just remember that big oil and cigarette companies are evil, and they're willing to do anything to further their greed. Uh, maybe oil companies are just better at hiding it, I guess, because this is just wide out, wide out in the open for everybody to see. It's truly crazy stuff. It is worth mentioning that recently in 2008, a research study was conducted, and the results were published in a journal called Inhalation Toxicology, where researchers took a deeper dive into the idea of using palladium as a safe additive in cigarettes. And what they found is that while, yes, there are less carcinogens present, there are some slight alterations in the chemical makeup of the smoke that differs from typical cigarette smoke. And thus, it's risky to make any assumptions on its overall safety when the long-term effects of it are still widely unknown. But even then, this is why technology and science evolves into bigger and better forms. So who's to say that the idea of palladium cigarettes wasn't completely, if it wasn't completely scrapped in the 80s, how could the invention have evolved through the years to today? Like we might even have like a perfect, quote unquote, perfect alternative. Like who knows? But for now, there's still widespread tobacco use and abuse in the world, and even these new e-cigarette options are proving to have unknown consequences. So one thing's for sure, though. The last thing we need is a freaking lobbyist group of big tobacco companies telling the government how they should act. And wrapping it up here, the last lost invention that I will touch on today is that of wireless energy. Okay, just take a second to digest that. Wireless energy. Imagine, instead of relying on, you know, that complex physical wiring system that runs through walls when you hit a light switch, imagine instead that you have instantaneous and safe electrical energy being transmitted through the air. Well, this grandiose idea was thought very possible by one ambitious inventor in the early 1900s. Now, I'm going to intentionally withhold the identity of this individual for now, but just know that this inventor was very well known and also very well known to be a pure genius, like genius on the level of Albert Einstein or Isaac Newton. So do not doubt the credibility here. So this whole story began in 1901 when J.P. Morgan, the famous banker and businessman, invested $150,000, which you know was a small fortune at that time, to build a large 185-foot tower on the coast of Long Island, New York. This tower was exclusively handed over to this unnamed inventor to design and create for use in communications. See, the idea was that this tower would serve as a sort of beacon, sending out and receiving transmissions from ships that are far off at sea by using the earth to conduct signals. The structure was eventually called the Wardenclyffe Tower, and while its construction was being completed, our savvy inventor wanted to use it for something else than just transmitting signals. See, this individual believed that it was possible to use the tower as a central power unit to transmit millions of volts of electricity across the sky and thus light up the entirety of New York using true wireless energy. Apparently, there was a fair bit of research behind this, but unfortunately, the original investor, J.P. Morgan, did not buy into this grand scheme. Some venture to say it was more than him not believing the claims, some conspiracy Conspiracists insist that J.P. Morgan was afraid that if the Wardenclyffe Tower could actually be used to offer New York limitless energy in this way, he would lose big on other investments that he had made in the energy sector elsewhere. So, with disagreements and strife abound, plans for the Wardenclyffe Tower were immediately halted, and the structure was actually taken down completely before it could ever actually be switched on. <laughs> 
from there, wireless energy is an idea that has never really seen any kind of modern success. Like there has been some breakthrough in short distance transmission of energy. And for those of you with modern smartphones, you might be familiar with this. But one example is those new charging stations where all you do is you place your phone on a charging surface and then the battery can be charged over this very small distance using a sort of wireless energy. But to imagine limitless wireless energy being transmitted at long distances and for use in all kinds of objects, that's something that only really made sense in the mind of this mysterious inventor. Some called the idea too crazy to ever work, but sometimes that's exactly what leads us to our greatest inventions, a bit of an innovation in ways that was previously never thought possible. Now, the reason that I've withheld the identity of this inventor is that I'm actually currently planning and researching next week's episode where I will be highlighting this individual who had a, a crazy life and needless to say did much more than dabble in wireless energy. And I figured it'd be nice to leave a little segue to build up excitement for next week, but also throw a little hint out there to those of you who might think you have an idea of who this person is. At any rate, I hope this little talk about wireless energy has spurred your imaginations and can excite you to learn more about the truly magnificent mind that theorized it. These lost inventions challenge everything we think we know about the past. Oftentimes, civilizations of history are viewed as simple-minded, at least when compared to the scientific and technological breakthroughs of the modern era, but maybe that isn't so true. Inventions like these force us to reconsider knowledge that has been possessed in the past, knowledge that unfortunately has become lost through time. But bringing light and attention to these lost technologies, especially those suppressed technologies, can reignite interest and perhaps one day in our lifetimes we can see these inventions reemerge. I hope you guys have found this podcast both entertaining and informative, and I hope I've piqued your interest for next week's episode. Some of you may already know who it was that studied this wireless energy, but I can almost guarantee that you've all heard his name somewhere before. But in any event, I hope you can join me next week, next Thursday, where I will release yet another episode of History's Great Mysteries. Thanks again for listening, and I wish you all the best. Until next time.